All right, Emmaus, if you would, take your Bible and open to the book of Ruth. This morning we are going to be uh, looking at multiple passages within the book of Ruth. So if you have a phone and you can access your Bible app on there, we want you to be able to do that. If you have a hard copy of Scripture in front of you, bring that out. I'll have the verses um, as a backup here on the screens behind me, but this morning, if you have access to Scripture, I hope you'll, you'll bring that out, and if not, you can use, the, uh, you can use the, the screens up here. If you received a bulletin as you were coming in on the back, uh, it's a little bit of framework or structure, kind of an idea of where we're going. If, you, if that's helpful for you and you want to turn that bulletin over, you can get an idea of kind of where we are. As a church, we are in the middle of a five-week series looking at the book of Ruth. If you're searching for Ruth in your Bible, you're going to find it there toward the beginning of your Bible as you go through those first books of the Old Testament, and then after you get to Joshua and Judges, kind of two history books there, you're going to get right into a smaller book, the, the book of Ruth. And so what we've been doing in the book of Ruth is following this pattern that will allow us to understand God's character how God works among his people. And so the first week, we talked about God's providence, his, his control, his sovereignty, that even in the most difficult circumstances, God is still working. God is still good. God is still in control. And so, so that framework of God's design, his control. And then last week, Jeff led you toward this idea of the kinsman redeemer, this concept of redemption. And then this week, we're going to move into if we serve a God who's in control, and if we serve a God who has redeemed and rescued and saved his people, then what does that look like in our lives? Where does that lead us? We use this graph quite often at Emmaus, and we'll just continue to put it in front of you because I think it's helpful for understanding Scripture. It's helpful for understanding how God works in our lives. You start up there in the top left with the idea of God's design. For our purposes in this series, this is the idea of providence and, and sovereignty, God's control, his goodness. He has a good plan for the world, and he's in control of that plan. Everything will circle back to that. But when we go away from God's design in our lives, that's called sin. We have moved away. We've gone a different direction. We're in control, and sin always leads to brokenness. Sin always leads to death, both generally in a world that we look at and think, oh my word, this thing is falling apart. But then also in our own lives, our separation from God, our brokenness in our lives. And all those squiggly lines, if you haven't been with us before on these three circles, those squiggly lines going out to the side of brokenness, those are our own personal attempts to escape brokenness in the world. My life is broken, the world's broken, and so I take it into my own hands, I can fix this. And we turn to all kinds of things and where do they lead? Further from God's design. Instead, the hope is when we repent and believe in the gospel, the gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ. Last week, Jeff painted a picture for you from the book of Ruth of the idea of the kinsman redeemer, the one who comes and offers salvation and redemption for his people. And let me just stop at this point and say, generally speaking, and, and we're going to be very general, and we'll just even kind of take Baptist churches as we have people in the building, part of Emmaus, that come from all kinds of backgrounds, but you just kind of take generally Christian churches. We get down here to the bottom circle. People are saved. They're baptized. They trust in Jesus. Oftentimes, we stop there. <laughs> we stop at that piece of the puzzle. Hey, they got saved. And we miss what God wants to do in and through a person's life at that point. Let me tell you that if Christianity ever comes across as boring or meaningless or you feel stuck in a rut, it's probably because we've missed what God wants to do in and through our lives through the power of the gospel. It doesn't stop there. We recover and pursue God's design for our life. The fancy word for, we use for this sometimes is called sanctification. Uh, sanctification is this process of being made holy, the work that God wants to do to lead us to live the life he's called us to live. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks in the book of Ruth is look at two ways that that begins to work itself out in our lives. So if I've experienced God's power, if I've experienced his salvation in my life, what does that begin to look like in my life? How does he work that out? We're going to do that for two weeks. 
And then in the fall, once we kind of get our feedback on the ground with school starting, we're going to spend several weeks talking about this concept of holiness and sanctification. What does it look like to be a people who've experienced the power of God? So, So that's kind of where we're at. I want to take you to a slide now, just as a quick caution before we get into this. Um, this idea of looking at characters in Scripture and talking about sanctification. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. When we look at Old Testament stories, and we start to look at someone's life in the Old Testament and say, that person can show me how to live as, as a person who loves and worships God, we can get in trouble in a hurry. The main purpose of the David and Goliath story in the Bible is not how to defeat the enemies in your life. The main purpose of the David and Goliath story in Scripture is because it paints this incredibly beautiful picture of God's gospel, his hope of salvation for his people. The book of Nehemiah is not primarily a leadership book. The book of Nehemiah is God's gospel on display, his goodness and glory on display as he's bringing his people back into the land. Now, can the story of David teach us something about how to deal with giants in our life? Sure it can. Can the book of Nehemiah teach us something about leadership? Sure it can. But we only get to those lessons through the gospel. If you jump straight to, here's a Bible character, I'm going to live the way they live, you're sunk. Because then, on your own power, you're looking to a human character and saying, I need to be like that person. The purpose of those Bible characters is to point us to Jesus, who then gives us the power to live the way that God has created his people to live. And so when we're talking about this whole process of sanctification, these things that took place in the Old Testament, they took place as examples for us. They were written for our instruction. We're surrounded by these witnesses. I want you to read your Old Testament and your New Testament, learning from these characters but not in order to be a better person, in order to see what does it look like for the power of God to be at work in my life. Because when you read these characters in the Old Testament, you find yourself picking and choosing a lot of times. Like, they did this really well, so I need to do that, but they really stunk in this area. Don't follow that example. We, we need direction in how we handle this. Um, one other thing as we get started before we jump into Ruth. When we start talking over the next couple of weeks, the story of Ruth it teaches us to be countercultural, to live in a way that is different than the world around us, and it teaches us to be cross-cultural. Now, when we think about living the life that God has called us to live, if we're not careful, we can pick a golden age, like, man, if we could just go back to living the way they did in the 1950s, and that, that would be, we'd live in, no, the 1950s needed the transformation of the power of the gospel as much as 2018 does. And so our goal over the next couple of weeks is not to point to a period of time and say, man, if we could just get back there, everything would be all good. No, no, we're looking in a different direction. We're looking to what is God's design for our life? How does he want to work in and through us? And so what I want to do for you this morning is I want to show you from the book of Ruth how God's people, through his power, are called to live counter-cultural, to live in a way that is different than the world around us, not contra-cultural, not being an enemy of everybody who's not a Christian. That's not, not the point at all. This is how does God shape our lives to look different. And we're going to look at a, a female version of that with the character of Ruth. And we're looking at a male version of that through the character of Boaz. And I hope as you see this, you'll see how much it matters for the world that we live in right now. Okay? So that's the game plan. Let's start with Ruth. And we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 16. What do we learn from Ruth? that teaches us how to live in this world in a way that sets us apart as people who have been saved, who have experienced the power of God. What what is different about Ruth? Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, as Naomi is trying to force her to go back to her country, back to Moab, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi, in verse 18, saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
the book of Ruth, even as it connects Ruth and Naomi as mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, the book of Ruth is a beautiful picture of friendship. In a world and where it's so easy to pass from person to person if somebody does one thing wrong and the friendship falls apart, from the very beginning, I want you to see how Ruth is a picture of loyalty, how Ruth is a picture of a friend who says, I am with you. We are together in this. Now, do friendships change over time? Absolutely. Do you go through hard times? Absolutely you do. Friendships are not always going to stay the same, but with the story of Ruth, especially through Ruth's character, you see the power of loyalty, you see the power of that determination of I'm going to make this happen. I am with you, I am for you, and we're going to walk through this together. Um, If you're in a situation where there have been broken friendships, this is not to cast blame to one side or the other, but just to say that in a world where people move from one relationship to the next so quickly, there is something to be said for just loyalty and stick-to-itness in in friendship. Um, A couple of weeks ago, one of my friends from college, the guy who was my roommate, was driving back through Oklahoma City, and so we stopped and, and grabbed lunch over at Torchy's, and we see each other probably every couple of years, maybe, but it's one of those friendships where you pick back up exactly where you left off. And I was reminded, man, what a gift to have those type of people in your life. You may only see each other a couple of times uh, over the course of years, but you get back together and think, that guy was loyal, he was there, we learn from each other, we make each other better. Ruth shows us a picture of that type of relationship. But there's another part of this friendship that I want you to see. Look down in chapter 2. Just for a second, so you don't get the wrong idea here. Chapter 2, verse 12. Here's something crucial about the friendship that Ruth had with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz is speaking at this point to Ruth, and he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Part of that is being loyal to Naomi. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Okay, we're going to refer to this a couple of times along the way. But one thing you're going to find out about Ruth is she has a strong core identity. Notice in verse 12, she does not take refuge under the wings of Naomi. There is great value in loyal friendships. And there is even greater value in in friendships where your stability is not tied up with the other person. Uh, The the fancy word we sometimes use for this is codependency, uh, but where you're so attached to the other person that your identity gets entangled in their identity. The book of Ruth teaches us about a woman who had incredible loyalty in a culture when it was so easy to move from one relationship to the next. Equally, it shows us a woman who had a strong core identity to the point that she found her refuge in the Lord, not in the other person. And that balance is very hard to find. How do you you form a friendship where you're loyal to one another, but you're not codependent on one another? Where you have a strong identity in the Lord to the point at which you can say, we're going to be loyal friends who both are able to stand on our own two feet. It's a hard place to get, but the way you get there is through the power of the gospel. As you understand, each of us have been redeemed by the Lord, each of us finds our identity in Christ, and equally, we benefit so much from one another that we're able to be loyal to one another through difficult circumstances. So that's the first thing I want you to see from Ruth, this value of a loyal friendship in a person's life. Number two from Ruth's life, I would want you to see the connection between faith and work. The connection between faith and work. Look back up in chapter 2. We're going to look up in chapter 2 at verse 2. I want to take you through some places in the book of Ruth where we see a combination between faith and work. Ruth is really a Proverbs 31 woman on display. You can tie some amazing connections between Ruth and Proverbs 31. But look at chapter 2, verse 2 in Ruth. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Okay, in verse 2, I want you to see a pattern that we're going to look at in about two or three different verses. Ruth and Naomi need food at this point. They've come back to Israel. They've heard there's a harvest happening. They've 
they've come back here to establish their lives. They need food. What does Ruth do? She goes to work. She says, I'm going out into the field. I'm going to get to work. I'm going to find some food for us. She takes action to go out there. But then she says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She doesn't know the person yet in whose sight she'll find favor, but she has faith that God's going to provide. You're going to see a connection in Ruth's life, a person who takes action, who gets to work, and a person who equally has faith that's going to provide. This faith-work balance that you read about in the book of James, you can take the book of James here and just lay it right over top of this point, this idea of should we have faith or should we work? Yes, we, ha- we have a faith that leads us to take action, a, a faith that leads us to obey what the Lord has, has called us to do. And when we work, we work with faith that God is going to provide, that he's called us to do this. Look in verse 3. Verse 3 says, She set out and went and gleaned. She got to work. She set out, went, gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come. There's one of the great lines in, in Scripture, isn't it? Like, like, it's being played across as a coincidence, but you can see the hand of God so much at work in this phrase. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. What's the pattern you see again? You see work, and you see faith. She took action, and then God was there to provide. Small time out, while I get distracted by almost nothing, I'm incredibly distracted by something right now. I just want to make sure it's not water, you know, like. <laughs> I've, I've heard stories, I've heard stories at Emmaus of water pouring down in, in certain areas, and so your kids can cry, doesn't bother me at all. Your kids can walk out, doesn't bother me at all. That right there threw me off, so, oh my word, I don't know, I don't know what that was. The point being, you see this connection between faith and work. Naomi, get, Ruth gets to work. And God is there to provide. God is guiding her every step of the way. Look down in verse 11. You're going to find the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. What story do you hear right there in verse 11? I think you hear the story of Abraham. This call to go and this call to have faith. The story of Abraham is all over Ruth chapter 2 verse 11. Have faith. Go. Do this thing I'm calling you to do. Verse 12. The Lord will repay you for what you have done and a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Maybe just a quick Aside on this point, this whole idea of, of Ruth being a woman who could combine faith and work, I, just simply, if you want to know more about this, I just point you straight to the book of James, because that's where you're going to see this played out so clearly. Um, Sermon on the Mount as well in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, when we talk about faith and work, sometimes we talk about that, especially with, with men dealing with this thing, but, but the more I talk to ladies and see the way that you all are seeking to live this out in your families, young ladies, as you're thinking about careers and where the Lord is leading you, for a lady to be able to say, I'm going to work, but I'm going to work in a way that doesn't control my identity because I know that I'm a woman of faith. And so, Yes, God has called me to be at work. I'm called to be at work maybe in a career or maybe in my family, but equally so, I'm not going to allow that to be disconnected from my faith. I know those things always fit together. And equally to say, I'm not going to be a woman of faith who just has faith without putting it into action. I know both of those matter, and so I'm going to grab hold of both those. And so, ladies, is that, if that's something you're struggling with, how do I put together work and faith? How do these fit together? Book of James Proverbs 31, even that call of Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12, get together with some other ladies who are navigating this faith and work idea. Those are good places to go to and begin to kind of navigate this, put this together. Here's the other thing I want you to tell, about, tell you about Ruth before we get to Boaz. Ruth 
shows a remarkable stability in her singleness, and then she shows remarkable maturity in marriage. So stability in singleness, maturity in marriage. Let me point you back to uh, verse 23. So we're in chapter 2, and we've kind of moved down to the end of, end of that chapter in chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 23. So Ruth is a widow uh, at this point. She's, she's lost her husband in Moab. She's come back to Israel. Verse 23 says, She kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She's in a strange land. She's had to work to provide for her mother-in-law, to provide for them here. She's lost her husband. She's single. She's a widow at this point. And one thing you see over and over in the book of Ruth is she's incredibly stable in this situation. Um, I'll be the first to tell you that the church has not always done a great job in knowing how to speak and care for and minister alongside those who are single. Uh, what should either be a gift for a lifetime or a calling for a season sometimes becomes seen as you're lacking something or it's a burden or you haven't come fully into all God's called you to be. We could do a lot better than that. And the, root, the book of Ruth points us in a direction of that. She has this incredible stability in, in her life at this point where she says, God has called me to this season. I've got to get to work to provide for my family, to provide for my mother-in-law. And I've come here to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, not under the wings of another man. And so I'm going to live out with stability the life that God has called me to live right here. And she does, apparently, in, in an incredibly powerful, beautiful way. So she has that stability in her life. She has that calling in her life. But then, <laughs> you turn around in chapter 3, and her mother-in-law, probably not in a nagging way, I'm sure in a very caring way, uh, in verse 1, it's not up on the screen, but in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? It's reading too much into this passage to say that Naomi's being passive-aggressive at this point. Uh, or, or if you're someone who is single and you have family members that have very strange ways of making hints at you that maybe now is about the right time to find a spouse, uh, it almost feels like Naomi's doing something like that right here. But she is pointing Ruth toward this idea of, I think there's something you need to look into. I think, I think you need to pursue this. And so she tells her to go to Boaz, who is a relative, and she lays out a very strategic plan for her that, that she will go to Boaz and, and lie at her feet. It's a story that can sometimes be, as Jeff said last week, can sometimes have some sexual overtones to it, but it seems to be very pure, very straightforward in what, what Ruth is doing at this point and going to Boaz. And then you get down to verse 10, and look what happens down there in chapter 3, verse 10. Boaz says, after Ruth comes to her at the urging of her mother-in-law, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. The phrase last kindness is really important. We're going to talk about it in a second here. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Stability and singleness prepared Ruth for maturity in marriage. She had the stability of her identity being in the Lord. She knew where her protection came from. She was willing to get to work. She had faith. That prepared her for what was going to come when she met Boaz here. And notice it says, he says in verse 10, you have made this last kindness greater than even the first Meaning, what you are doing for me now has been the pattern of your life up to this point. If you're single and you're saying, I wonder if the Lord is going to lead me toward a marriage, I wonder what the Lord is leading me toward, you are preparing now by living the life that God has called you to live for what he may do, what he may want to do in your life to come. Stability now, identity now in the Lord sets the stage for what he's going to do later. She didn't immediately automatically become an amazing kind woman when she met Boaz. She had established that pattern in her life up to that point. Um, being careful of this next point, but it's worth making. Students, as you're thinking about relationships and navigating these ideas for marriage, does the Lord change people? Absolutely he does. There are, there's radical transformation, and, and so many people can say, I've seen that happen in my marriage. Equally so, 
I would tell you that a pattern of behavior before marriage is very likely to continue after marriage. Um, you don't marry someone saying, oh, they just acted like that when they were single. They won't act like that when they're married. Oh, yes, they will. Um, and in fact, it'll probably be exaggerated even more. And so what you have with Ruth here is you have this pattern in her life that then carries straight into this maturity that she has in marriage. Into verse 11, she's called a worthy woman. The really cool thing about this, this is the same word that's used to describe Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. She doesn't need Boaz to complete her. What you're seeing is her character matches his character. She finds someone who is also worthy, counted worthy in the side of the Lord, meaning strong, virtuous. It's a word that often referred to someone who was in the military, who was in the army, who had strength. She finds someone who matches the character that God has called her to have, and they come together in this time. So stability and singleness leads to maturity in marriage, and you see this portrayed. We're actually going to talk next week a lot more about the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. So we'll leave that aside for right now, and we'll come back around next week and talk more about their marriage. Now let's talk about Boaz in particular. What do we know about Boaz? I hope, I hope this next point will open up to you the importance of why we read Scripture together, of how God has put all these pieces together. The words may be a little, uh, I should have used bold face and I didn't, but let's go to the next screen. I want to show you something, and I'll read them out loud because it's going to be hard to see. Here's, here's this, this incredible thing that happens in the Bible. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Are you serious? Who is Boaz's mother? Rahab. Boaz becomes the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Who's Rahab? Remember Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient. Rahab is the figure from the book of Joshua. As the people, the spies are sent in to the promised land and they encounter Rahab, who is a prostitute. So get this. Boaz's mother was a foreign woman who came to faith in God and she was someone who who would have been incredibly mistreated by men in her life because of what her occupation was. Did she need to take responsibility for her own decisions? Absolutely. Was she mistreated? You can be certain of it because of who she was. Foreign woman comes to faith in Yahweh, would have had experiences of being incredibly mistreated um, by, by other men. Can you imagine the conversation she would have had with her son about that experience? the way that she would have spoken to him about the things that she had been through, how she came to faith. And yet, why, why does that matter? It matters because of what you're going to see very, very next. Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. This is after Ruth has come to Boaz. Chapter 2, verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes, verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Okay, make sure we see how these pictures come together. Here's Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Foreign woman, comes to faith in Yahweh, would have been mistreated. Here comes Ruth, foreign woman, comes to faith in Yahweh, and she's about to go into a situation where very likely she will be abused and mistreated as a worker in these fields. But the Lord has prepared Boaz for this moment to step in and say, no, I will protect you. I will watch out. Why? The Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz knows the law. He knows the calling that God has given his people to protect those who are vulnerable. He knows what it is to have the protection of the Lord, and so he is going to make sure that Ruth is protected. If ever there was a point that made sense in our culture, it's this one right here. Um, We live in a boys-will-be-boys culture. 
Guys, you can do better than that. Boys will be Boaz. Not boys will be boys. Boys will be Boaz. That you will step into a situation, step into a world where it's so easy to say, oh yeah, we have our highest political leaders, we have some of our highest religious leaders who have allowed the abuse of women, who have spoken about women in incredibly degrading ways. Here's a picture of what it looks like to protect Here's a picture of what it looks like to respect, not just to be a, a better person, but because you understand the protection that God gives to his people, and so you're going to do everything you can to extend that protection to others. What's that calling look like in our lives as a church? We must commit to showing the love and character of God to the world around us and doing it in a way that is gospel-centered. Not saying, look at us, wow, look at us, we're so much better, we've got it all figured out, to say, no, we understand the temptations in our own heart, we understand the pain in our world, but we believe that Jesus has overcome that. Because with Boaz, don't miss this, with Boaz, you're seeing a picture of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, because remember how Joseph treated Mary. The respect he showed to her, the purity he displayed the protection there's a picture there but Boaz is obviously also a picture of Jesus showing us what it looks like to protect and redeem and provide men our me too culture church too I don't know if you've looked at the hashtag church too on social media but man that'll make your stomach curl up to know the types of abuse that have taken place and been allowed in church contexts we obviously want Emmaus to be a safe place, and we, we need to do everything we can to make that happen. And it begins with men who say, we will make sure that you are protected. And we will stand on the character of God, and we will stand on the hope of the gospel, and we will watch out for one another. And the way we speak, with our actions, with things we do behind the scenes, that this would be the safest possible place. Do things happen? Yeah, yeah they do. But we're going to do everything we can to make sure they don't. We're going to stand in the gap, and we're going to come together as guys and say, Lord, prepare us for this. You've called us to this. How do we do this? But notice something. Boaz doesn't just protect. He also provides for Ruth. Chapter 3, verse 15. After Ruth and Boaz are together there, chapter 3, verse 15 Boaz says, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Immediately with protecting comes providing. He respects her, he watches out for her, he makes sure she's okay, and then he says, and here, I'm going to make sure you're cared for. But watch how it happens even, even further down the story. Chapter 4, verse 5. We find out there's another relative in the story who's closer than Boaz, who's able to step in and marry Ruth. And so chapter 4, verse 5, Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, he's speaking to this other relative, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. All right, so ladies, this is pretty simple. If you're single, you circle Ruth 4, verse 6, and say, don't marry that guy, all right? So uh, here's somebody. He wants the goods, but not the girl. Um, He's ultimately greedy here. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take, I'll add to my inheritance. Give me some more property. I'll buy that. Oh, it comes with her? No, I don't want her. I just wanted what was going to be good for me, what was going to make me better, what was going to grow my inheritance, which was going to make my name stronger. That's what he wants to do. He wants the inheritance to make his own name greater, and in the process, he removes his name from the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because he was so greedy, so selfish in that moment to lift up his own name, he wanted this inheritance He actually cuts himself out. He could have been in Matthew chapter 1. But instead, you find Boaz steps in. 
verse 7. Well, actually, let's skip down there to, uh, uh, what do we have? Down to verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. So when the Redeemer, this closer relative, said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, Boaz drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Guys, what, what does Boaz teach us here? He teaches us the value of protection, and he teaches us the value of generosity. Um, young guys, not married yet, thinking about what it looks like to love another woman the way the Lord teaches us, be generous, not greedy. Be someone who re- protects, respects, provides, is generous. You see this picture here with Boaz. But we've already talked about the fact that we know that it doesn't stop with Boaz. Ultimately, this story is about pointing us to Jesus. So how does it do that? I've got a slide here I want to show you. These are on your notes as well, if it'd be easier to look at, at your bulletin. Jesus provides for us a countercultural example of what it means to be the people of God. He shows us what we see as a shadow in the book of Ruth. He shows us fully. As God with us, Jesus teaches us to live fully as humans. He's come to this earth to say, I've placed you here. Here's how you live this out. Here's how the God of the universe takes on flesh. It's not about escaping this world. It's about living here as the people that I've called you to be. As son of God, Jesus upholds the value of male and female. And I know we could go in a lot of different directions with this, but, but what you see in Scripture and what you see with the life of Jesus is this idea that, that gender is not a burden, it's a gift, but it's a gift that we're called to live out together. Jesus, of all people in history, values women, protects women, empowers women, This is not the type of gender conversation where you're trying to divide. This is the type of gender conversation where you're coming together and saying, there is value here. There's value here when we live it out, though, the way that God has called us to live it out according to his word. And that's a great need in our society. Just upholding this idea of we're not going to shout, we're not going to scream, we're not going to say, oh, wow, this is the only way. We're going to say, no, here's, here's the gospel on display And the gospel in display is living it out as men and women who have been redeemed, who have been changed by the power of Christ. As Savior, Jesus shows each of us our need for transformation. No matter where you are, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what culture you're living in, every one of us needs this type of transformation. What kind of Savior is he? Look at the next slide and we'll wrap up here. He's a countercultural Savior who says, be hopeful. Trust in him. Remember that chapter 2, verse 12 verse about how they took refuge under the wings of the Almighty? Let me ask you a question. Where are you taking refuge? Where do you find your protection? Where do you find your identity? Where do you find your hope? Whose wings are you under? Who is over you providing that protection and lordship? If you're here this morning, and you're seeking out protection and hope in anyone other than Jesus Christ, that person or that source will ultimately let you down. Our core identity is found in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our stability. He is our protection. He is our foundation. Trust in him. Don't be afraid. Number two, be faithful. Don't waver. Follow him. He is showing us the way that we should go. There is a path to be walked, And it's found through the word of God. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's found when we're brought together as a church. There are hard gender conversations to have. There are hard conversations to have around the topics that we've discussed this morning, around abuse. Don't dismiss those. Come together and say, we're going to have those conversations, and we're going to have them under the direction of God's word through the person of Jesus. And then finally, be light 
don't hide. This whole conversation about being countercultural is not that you would go out and find everything that's wrong in the world and then go point it out. <laughs> the hope this morning is that you would see how good and beautiful the story of Ruth is, how dependable and great Jesus Christ is, and you would say, I'm going to give everything for him. I'm going to speak and I'm going to live in a way that says this is what Jesus would want me to do. What I want us to do right now at the end of our service is instead of standing up and, and singing a song together, I want us to just have a couple of moments to reflect, to pray, to think on these things. There's a lot going on in this story. We've, we've approached a lot of different topics this morning from friendship to singleness to marriage to how do we protect and provide. I want us to take a few minutes right now just to focus on those things. So if you would, bow your heads with me right now. If you need someone to pray with you, talk with you this morning, the pastors stick around at the end of the service up here at the front. Don't leave. We want to, we want to hear how God's at work in your life. We want to pray for you. But, but right now, let me ask you to consider what we've talked about today. God is in control. He has a design and a plan for our lives and for his world. And through the hope of Christ, he has made a way for us to be forgiven. He's made a way for us to be set free. He's making us holy. And one of the ways he does that is he calls us to live in a way that doesn't match the world around us. He calls us to live in a different way, to be light and salt. Ladies, as you consider where the Lord has, has placed you in life, the topics of loyalty and friendship, the topics of work and faith. Have you been guilty of separating your work from your faith? The topic of, of singleness and marriage, where God has placed you right now. Are you trusting the Lord? Are you living with the stability that comes from Christ and no one else? Ladies, I pray that as you are seeking the Lord in repentance, as you're seeking the Lord in direction, that you would be women of faith, that you are working alongside as part of the church as those who are valued and honored and empowered by the God of the universe. Guys, we live in a world where sometimes you're, you're tempted or even encouraged to speak about women in a way that's not appropriate. You walk around with a phone that is immediate access to all kinds of dangerous material. You might have been guilty of times in your life when you have not protected when you've not been there to respect the women around you. I pray that you would seek the Lord for his forgiveness and more than that, for, for his power and direction to guide you forward. Not just saying I'm sorry, but saying, Lord, transform me from the inside out. Give me strength to set a different example at work and at school. Should be someone who protects and provides. Guys, let's lead the way in being a generous church. As you think about being a dad and a husband, you're probably frugal with your own money just for your own decisions, but that your family would be generous, that our church would be generous, that generosity is so countercultural, the idea that we're giving because we trust that the Lord will provide. And Emmaus, I pray that we would not be a church that hides. I love you and I'm so excited about the work that God is doing in us. Let's be a church that proclaims and displays Jesus, that in everything we say and everything we do, people would know who we're pointing toward. 
God, you are so good to us. You are the Lord of the universe. You are the Lord of our hearts. God, change us individually, change us as families, change us as a church, God, that we would be light and salt for the world. God, do things through this church that only you would get the glory for us. God, we don't want to live for our own name. We want to live for you and for your glory. So God, do that work. Thank you for this people. May we be faithful in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are helping with the offering, if you would not mind grabbing those plates, or if you see a plate at the end of your uh, aisle, if you would grab that and begin to, to pass it down, down the aisle. If you're a guest of ours and you had a chance to uh, fill out one of those guest cards, if you would place that in the offering plate. If you ever miss the offering plate and it passes you before you're ready, as you exit, there are black boxes on the wall as you leave. Um, also, I know many of you give online, or if you didn't know that was an option and that's helpful for you, you can go to our website to EmmausOKC.org, um, and there's an option to give online, and more and more of you are doing that. And during the summer, when we normally expect giving to go down, you guys have just continued faithful straight through the summer, and I know that automatic online giving helps when you're away on vacation. You're like, oh yeah, that did come out of my checking account. Um, you see that money go out. We, we appreciate that. Thank you for what, what you do in that. Hey, let me prepare you for August. I know you don't need my preparation for August because the reality of August is, is coming too quickly. So just know that there's some great back-to-school opportunities as part of Emmaus. Let me point out a couple really quickly. August 5th, Sunday p.m., we're going to do service projects in our community at local schools. Uh, this is one of my favorite things that we do throughout the year, and so that evening, Jim is lining up different service projects at schools in the area. So come with your work clothes, come and be a part of that. If you have ideas for that, get in touch with Jim, and, and he'll help, help to coordinate all those sort of things. August 19th is Sunday school promotion for our, our kids, and so it's a good chance for the kids to get tied back into their Sunday school classes, for us as adults to get back in that, in that habit. Also, the night of August 16th, we're having our mission share service. We've had teams all over the world this summer, and so we're going to have a night where we just share about what God's been doing in our church. As if that's not great enough, we also decided to put the homemade ice cream to the test that night. So uh, August the 19th, uh, we're going to have mission share night that night, and then we're also asking you to to show off. This is one time it is okay to show off, um, but we're asking you to, to bring some homemade ice cream, so you'll hear more about that, but I just want to put that bug in your ear that that's coming. Lots of cool things happening in August as we get started back up with school. Love you all. Thank you so much for being here. Hope you have a great week. God bless you.